This is Macro Horizons, Episode 4, Squaring the Circle, presented by BMO Capital Markets. I'm your host, Ian Lingen, here with Ben Jeffrey and John Hill to bring you our thoughts from the trading desk for the upcoming week of February 4th. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of BMO Capital Markets, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. Each week, we offer an updated view on the U.S. rates market. But more importantly, the show is centered on responding directly to questions submitted by listeners and clients. We also end each show with our musings on the week ahead. Please feel free to reach out on Bloomberg or email me at ian.lyngen at bmo.com with questions for future episodes. We value your input and hope to make this as interactive as possible. So, that being said, let's get started. It has been an exciting week in the Treasury market. In very few episodes do we have the confluence of both strong data and a Fed who has made a decision to pause in its normalization process. We learned a great deal from the Fed this week, not least of which was the Fed's decision to introduce the word patience into the statement. I think that the introduction of patience is uh, brilliant for a couple of reasons. One is it is a very clear signal to the Treasury market that the Fed will be on hold for the foreseeable future. Now, the debate is obviously going to begin, what is the foreseeable future? Does that mean that June is off the table? Does that mean that September is off the table? I think from our perspective, December is going to very quickly become the operative meeting. In our pre-NFP survey, we asked the question, what was the most likely meeting for the Fed to restart the tightening campaign if that does happen? The answer was consistent with our intuition, and that is it really is the December meeting. The market is using the experience of 2016 to inform some of this thinking. Obviously, it was a different world in 2016, although some of the parallels for the reason for the Fed to pause are the same, namely that we have an external shock driven by a slowing of the global economy. In this case, as in 2016, the origins of the concerns can be traced to China. However, the fallout has extended into continental Europe, and we have the backdrop of Brexit. Generally speaking, Our take on the market's initial reaction is that investors have repriced to a lower rate plateau that will be with us for quite some time. We've been talking a great deal about the notion that the curve flattening, twos, tens in particular, is really owned by the Fed. And as a result of the Fed, one could argue that the cyclical re-steepening has begun. We're not in that camp, at least not yet. We continue to think that the Fed will try to talk back some of the dovishness that they delivered this week over the coming weeks and months. In practical terms, that simply means that the bid that we have seen in the two-year sector will come under pressure, and we will see a modest in-range backup in rates, which will reignite flattening concerns. Now, whether or not we ultimately get to an inverted twos-tens curve during this cycle remains to be seen. However, we maintain that the next 75 basis points in twos tens, it will be steeper rather than flatter. One of the things that has been somewhat surprising over the course of the last week is just how dovish the market has become. 
in conversations with clients, we often get the question whether or not the Fed is going to be able to hike at all again this cycle. That's a market shift from fourth quarter of last year. The notion that the Fed doesn't pause, it just ends the cycle, has become very thematic. And while we're on board with that notion conceptually, we don't think that the Fed has had its last word on this topic. Our core bullishness remains in place. We continue to see the prospects for 10-year yields retesting that 255 low mark with a bit of resistance on the way, call it 260, give or take. It's looking increasingly as though a three-handle in 10s will remain elusive at least for the next quarter. None of this represents a significant shift in our thinking on the treasury market. However, it is worth noting that prices changed more than the facts during the end of 2018, and the facts have been catching up in 2019. That's not meant to be as glib as it sounds. It's simply a different way of saying the equity market priced in a more significant slowdown before we saw it actually reflected in the data. Now, part of that has to do with the trade war. Part of that has to do with the uncertainty coming out of the equity market in terms of earnings and forward revenue guidance. So it follows intuitively that the tightening scene in financial conditions has led to the Fed's decision to pause. Thanks for that, Ian. Now, turning to some of the questions we've received over the past week, going forward, the question around stock buybacks. It was a big theme in 2018 that the windfall that a lot of corporations received after the tax cut was going to be used for CapEx. That kind of played out, kind of didn't. And we saw record levels of companies, at least in the S&P 500, buying back their own stock. Going forward into 2019, what are you thinking about how this is going to shape market interplay, rates, equities, what have you. To suggest that I have any insight into the equity market would be overplaying my hand to be sure. Certainly, I've been looking for a bit more of a modest correction for probably the last three or four years. And the fact that we haven't got it in part was a function of the great tax reforms, which effectively financed a trillion and a half dollars worth of upside on the corporate sector with a trillion and a half dollars worth of treasury issuance. I think that there was a fair amount of surprise, at least in Washington, that the reduction in the effective tax rate didn't translate into a capex boon. In fact, I would say that the net result was that capex in the latter part of 2017 was delayed until the tax reforms went through. We saw a couple solid quarters at the beginning of 2018, and part of that was bringing forward future CapEx plans from years further out. So the notion that we ended up with a ton of buybacks follows intuitively, or at least it does to me. If prior to the tax reforms, money was effectively free because the Fed was at zero, and there were still no projects that were considered positive from an MPV perspective, what would actually change? So to increase shareholder value, share buybacks, special dividends, and an increase in M&A activity proved to be the most effective ways to do that. So to 
push back slightly on that idea. I certainly agree the CapEx has been underwhelming. It's starting to turn faster than I think a lot of people in DC might have thought. I guess, do you see this as a longer term thing? Because one of the arguments could be lower corporate tax rate, higher structural CapEx in future decades. It just were kind of timing at this moment, the end of a cycle. And there are, there are relatively important implications for this for such as, you know, neutral growth, potential growth going forward, as well as neutral level of interest rates. Well, there's no such thing as a permanent tax cut. My takeaway from Trumponomics or the great tax reform was it only proved to be short-term in nature. It was a proverbial flash in the pan. And for that reason, I don't think that the there'll be any longer-term structural change that decision-makers on the corporate level are truly going to believe is here to stay. What happens in 2020 if the House and Senate, or maybe even the White House, go the other direction to the Democrats, and we have either a repeal or another version of reforms that make the corporate tax structure less attractive. I think that that's the biggest unknown. Now, I'm definitely sympathetic to the idea that the tax reforms that we actually got were page one out of the GOP policy manual. They made it more attractive for businesses to invest invest in the U.S. versus abroad. And when combined with the administration's current push towards a more protectionist stance on trade policy, I think that the, the net is going to be constructive longer term if it stays in place. And that's, the, and that's the biggest unknown. So in addition to being the Tax Lawyer Full Employment Act, what does this mean for neutral interest rates and how the Fed is thinking about monetary policy? So because the tax reform doesn't appear to have shot the U.S. economy into a higher growth plateau, um, so even if you look at potential growth metrics from the CBO or FOMC's summary of economic projections, the, the potential growth of the U.S. economy hasn't really shot up all that much. We get a one-off stimulative impact that pushed growth up in the past couple quarters. But the way to think about neutral policy or the way that a lot of Fed economists would is that it's largely a function of potential growth. You know, if you, if you have potential at 1.8%, and then you throw in 2% inflation, you get somewhere near the 2.75. It's more complicated than that, but that's a ballpark. So as a general theme, it's a moving target. It's a moving target that we often don't know that we've truly achieved neutral until we're long past it. Is that fair to say? Absolutely. And, you know, really diving into the weeds of some of these models, you might have a base case output of 60 basis points as a neutral real rate, but the error bands around it are huge. It's a couple hundred basis points. So it's like, well, neutral somewhere between, you know, negative 1.5 to 2.5, 3.5%. We don't really know. All we can really do is see how does the data respond to different levels of interest rates. And so then the FOMC and, and the Fed have really complicated matters quite a bit this round because of the balance sheet. So that really begs the question, what happens in 2019 with this newly introduced flexibility, and what does that apply for the correct level of excess reserves? Well, so in addition to the balance sheet question, it's, it's very difficult to try to model or think about what's the impact on financial conditions of the balance sheet. 
And largely one way to think about what the Fed did was during quantitative easing, rather than having a ton of treasury supply hit the market, blow out term premia, crowd out private investment, they helped push interest rates lower by providing an additional source of secondary demand. There's another argument there. Not only did they push investors further out the yield curve in treasury space, but as QE went on, they also pushed investors out the credit curve and then the asset curve ending at the equity market. And what we're seeing right now is as the balance sheet is wound down, the equity market has become far more sensitive to the incremental shift in Fed language surrounding the balance sheet. And that makes sense. You know, it's it's always been a linear roll-off, a very clear pace of roll-off that you might know ahead of time with nonlinear impacts. Because of that portfolio rebalance channel, it's a little bit murkier as to the ebbs and flows and how that might feed through into the real economy. And John, just in terms of size of the balance sheet, I know you've talked a lot about the impact that scarce or excess reserves can have at different places in the market. Is that something that you're paying attention to closely? Absolutely. This is one of the big overhangs right now in global financial markets is one way to think about it is nobody's ever successfully exited a quantitative easing program and gone back to the world they were before. Now, certainly the Fed does not want to go back to 2005, 2006, whatever. But watching this roll off take place, the spillover into macro financial conditions, and then an implication for rates is extremely important. And one final thing I'd note, when I'm thinking about it, I'm much more focused on the level of reserves than the size of the balance sheet. I think some people like the aggregate size of the balance sheet, but really the more important thing to watch is the level of excess reserves in the system. What do you make of the argument that given the Fed is trying to embark on the previously unattainable, i.e. effectively run down their balance sheet to an ideal level, and the experience that Japan has had with QE. Do you think that 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 might be a better benchmark for us to think about in terms of what monetary policy in the U.S. will look like over the next couple decades? Or do you think the real story is the experience of the crisis and the Fed's first foray into QE will be its last? No, I certainly wouldn't expect it to be its last. The the reality is that in the past several rate cut cycles, the Fed cuts rule of thumb 500 basis points. We're talking about the end of the hiking cycle at 240. So just using that as a preliminary guidepost, the Fed, when they do cut rates in the next recession, it won't be as much as they have historically, and there's a very good likelihood that they would have to go back into another QE program. To your point about Japan, that represents a really interesting and nuanced picture going forward, particularly around the demographic question. Japan has extremely low interest rates, very high levels of public debt, but they've managed to kind of progress, at least on the per capita side, As the country gets older and older, I think you're going to start to see something emblematic of that in Western Europe, in the U.S., and arguably, you've already done so. I mean, neutral real rates just over 0% are, are quite low. That's a very good point. And you alluded to the shift of measuring growth from an aggregate to a per capita basis. I'm certainly cognizant on the political side, you always want to be showing growth, but 
taking a step back, if you do have an aging population, fewer people participating in the labor market, why would one expect aggregate growth in real terms to remain positive? Exactly. And, you know, occasionally we have questions of, do we expect 10s and 30s to go back to levels we saw in the 80s or 90s? The reality is no. The demographic picture, the kind of fundamental construct of economic growth is incredibly different. Even were productivity growth to rebound, we wouldn't expect any type of movement back in that direction. I'd add to that that the labor market was much different in the U.S. in the 70s and 80s as well. Not only did we have a larger portion of the working population dedicated to the manufacturing sector, but unions were much stronger, and as a result, collective bargaining power led to things like COLA adjustments. So from there, one of the big questions is, could we see the back end reprice into 5 or 6%? That, that kind of logic has been thrown around. And if we don't get it from neutral policy, if we don't get it from policy rate expectations, which seem to average in the high twos, low threes, whatever, could you see a shock in term premia? positive. And is it even obvious that we should anticipate positive term premia going forward? What do you say to the idea that we could have structurally negative term premium? So this is something we've been kicking around for a while. And I think it's kind of compelling to have a potentially structural negative term premium. You know, if, if you had a few years ago asked someone, okay, let's think of the state of the world where the ECB stops their QE program, the Fed's rolling off its balance sheet, you have record size auctions in 10s and 30s, average hourly earnings is breaking 3%, you know, you have this big fiscal program, all of these should be pushing up term premium. And by most estimates, say the New York Fed's ACM model, we still have rather negative term premium out to 10 years, call it negative 60 basis points. And 10-year yields struggling to break 325 yeah. So in, in practical terms, the construct of term premium has real implications for investors. Absolutely. And the way I think about term premium is at a first pass, if you look at a 10-year yield, it's the expected short rate over 10 years, plus or minus term premium to get you to current prices. And there are, I would say, two key arguments for why you could see a structural negative term premium. One is if I just look forward over the next 10 years, the distribution of risk seems more to the downside. And that comes partly from the possibility of a recession, but also, as we were mentioning, the Fed's not going to be able to cut rates as much as we might like, so they're going to be bound on monetary policy. The fiscal side, people are going to panic about debt levels, and there might be a pro-cyclical austerity that extends the downturn. So maybe you get another QE program. All three of those are disinflationary, lower rates for longer. And then the other is is a kind of in the weeds thought that uh, an uh, old so, so just to be clear, what we were just talking about wasn't really in the weeds. Yeah, sure, sure. But yeah, I have an aptitude for policy wonkness. But it's the idea that risk isn't variance; it's covariance. And what that means is like just looking at price movements isn't enough. You have to look at how things evolve with different states of the world. And in particular, treasuries are basically an insurance product nowadays. And that's because in bad states of the world, the Fed responds to tightening financial conditions by lowering interest rates. Expectations for that feed through throughout the economy. And so it's nice to own treasuries in scary states of the world. And similar to other insurance products, you're willing to pay up a little bit more for those. Uh, for example, you know, we all have health insurance. I'm really hoping I don't make money on my health insurance, but I'm happy to lose money in it because when I really need it, it comes in handy. 
Treasuries operate like a weird little monetary policy insurance or hedge against risk assets. Uh, that incentivizes people to pay up more than they would just on short rate policy, higher price, negative term premium. That's all well and good for multi-year time horizons, a policy outlook, stuff like that. But in terms of more immediate trading direction, what are some of the things that you guys are leaning on for the next couple sessions, the next couple weeks, things on a, on a much shorter time horizon? When I started in the business a very long time ago, certainly seems that way now, one of the first questions that I received multiple times on any given day was, yeah, that's great, but what's your level? And as you're forced to actually choose levels to execute your trading ideas, what you find is that the longer-term policy economic arguments are difficult to apply very real-time. The classic adage, the market can remain irrational longer than you can remain liquid, was definitely tossed back at me several times, still is, frankly. So when we think about the actual levels that we would like to put on for a trade, the technicals take on a bit more importance than, frankly, I ever would have thought they would when I began my career. The way that I tend to internalize that is we have very few versions of applied behavioral finance, and technical analysis and the charts are one of them. In addition, we've seen something of a renaissance in technicals over the course of the last 15 years. With the rise of algos, it's become very clear that things that are programmable have become executable. So what's your response to some of the deeper academic logic or arguments that technicals don't matter? Albeit, you know, the phrase ivory tower and not actually trading in the market come to mind. But for someone who is trained to think about finance or economics in an academic sense, there can sometimes feel like a little bit of a disconnect. I'm all too cognizant of the disconnect. For example, when the market is selling off. But with a grounded belief in efficient markets, with 10-year yields at, say, 275, means that there's people on either side of that trade. There are people who think that rates are going up. There are people who think that rates are going down. And so each incremental piece of information that shifts the market perception will hit a new or different plateau. And frankly, further out in the curve, it becomes far, far, far more difficult to model than it does, for example, in bills twos and threes. We all know that bills twos and threes function mechanically off of monetary policy expectations, and monetary policy expectations are informed by Fed officials in the data. But 10 and 30-year yields, on the other hand, are beholden to a number of different external influences, not least of which is a classic flight to quality. And so with all of these competing influences, at the end of the day, you have to choose a level. And for lack of a better alternative, technicals tend to be a very good way to watch how market sentiment is swinging and to see if and when a particular move has become extended. All of my personal favorite measures are momentum and positions-based. When everyone is on one side of the boat, there's clear danger of capsizing. And I, I think it's also important to remember we're talking kind of the difference between fundamentals and technicals, but they're not necessarily mutually exclusive. I mean, you can see data releases occur when yields are right up against a significant resistance or support point, and depending on which way the data breaks, that could make a potentially 
more second tier data release have a greater impact than we would otherwise think given yields break through, whether it be a multi-week, multi-month channel, support level pushing momentum one way or the other? I'd argue we actually saw a great case study of that back in early October. And uh, if, I, if I recall, it was an ISM, non-manufacturing or manufacturing, like a decent data release, but not NFP. But it occurred right near multi-year high levels in 10s and 30s. The follow-on price action struck us as outsized at the time, at least if the only factor was repricing in response to the data. On the other hand, the fact that some of these technical levels were being tripped drove the biggest sell-off in treasuries since Election Day in 2016. That's a very good point. And with all the flash rallies, flash crashes, I think it's quite evident that the algos and the CTAs are much bigger players, which again, looping back to the earlier point, means that the technicals are arguably more relevant now than they were 10 or 15 years ago. This certainly won't be the last time that we debate whether or not the technicals or fundamentals will be the next incremental driver in the treasury market. And in keeping with the theme of this being a program dedicated to addressing listener questions, please feel free to send in technical as well as broader fundamental and economic questions. Thanks for the update, both of you. I think that's good context, both from a monetary policy, fundamental economic perspective, as well as more short-term trading dynamics and how we're thinking about the market. In the week ahead, monetary policy officials will be tasked with refining the message that the FOMC communicated in its most recent statement. This is more than simply nuance and offers the opportunity to the Fed to make their policy intentions even more clear. There's no question that it was an aggressively dovish pause on the part of the FOMC. And as we see in the futures curve, market participants are already pricing in a reasonable probability of a rate cut. We don't think the Fed will be content to let that pricing persist for too long. In fact, all else being equal, the Fed would surely like to see a small probability of an increase in Fed funds by the end of this year actively priced into the market. The question then becomes, is the Fed willing at this point to convince market participants to price that in? Might be a bit early for that trade, but we ultimately think that at the end of the day is we will see the pendulum of policy expectations swing from being extremely dovish to something more moderate. With that as a backdrop, we're encouraged to see that 10-year yields are drifting back toward the bottom of the trading range that's been in place throughout 2019. Intuitively, that makes sense given what we have seen from the Fed. It's also notable that this price action has occurred in the run-up to the upcoming refunding auctions. The prevailing range in 10-year yields of 254 to roughly 280 remains, and we expect that that will be key going forward. Sure, we'll have a chance to retest 280 at some point. However, for the time being, that seems to be the clear line in the sand in any backup in rates. We'd like to come out of the refunding process long duration, and we'll be keeping an eye on the direct participation in 10- and 30-year auctions. The last time that we saw a significant shift between directs and indirects, it was a story of reallocating 
from one category to another. Any more aggressive bidding from direct participants at this stage will most likely be at the expense of the dealer takedown. While this is longer term constructive for the treasury market, it also represents a risk that the street will be incrementally less willing to set up for the upcoming supply. That's by no means breaking any new strategic or analytic ground, although it does point to the necessity of pricing in reasonable auction concessions at this point in the cycle. We are reminded of the time-tested adage, auctions bring out buyers, with the nuance that Japanese have not been significant participants in treasury auctions or the treasury market in net buying terms for quite some time. Obviously, given what is going on with the Chinese economy, the fact that the data continues to illustrate a net reduction in Chinese reserves, it's not surprising to assume that these two historic buyers of treasuries will continue to be absent. We find ourselves pondering what happens when the Japanese come back in and buy more aggressively. This is unlikely a near-term phenomenon, particularly given how unattractive treasury yields remain on a hedge-adjusted basis. The notion that we'll continue to see a consolidation toward the bottom of the yield range is consistent with our broader take on the market. It also suggests that the range that's been in place throughout most of this year is going to continue. We have been watching a few technical formations of note. The most obvious one, and admittedly we've been on about this for a while, is the death cross, which is the cross between the 50-day moving average and the 200-day moving average. It was first notable in fives, then tens and thirties, and we have now seen it in the two-year sector. That's particularly notable given the proximity of two-year yields at present and the effective funds rate. Obviously, effective funds represents a key floor for two-year yields up until the point in which the market becomes more convinced that not only has the Fed delivered its last rate hike for the tightening cycle, but also that we will see rate cuts at some point in the near to medium term. The bullish implications from the cross of the 50 and 200 day moving average certainly reminds us that death always wins in the end. However, we think that it will be a longer period to see this technical formation truly come to fruition. What we did see is the descending triangle in 10-year yields break in favor of lower yields and realize its projection of roughly 262 in 10s. There's been a great deal of chatter about exactly what we should expect in terms of the terminal point for the reduction of the balance sheet. Said differently, what is the right number for excess reserves? We suspect that at the end of the day, the right number for excess reserves is comparable to defining the neutral rate for monetary policy. You'll know it when you passed it. For that reason, we think that the Fed will be more willing, as they've already said, to be flexible. And as a result, we think that the Fed will be quicker to pause or to end the runoff, given the experience of the beginning of 2018 with LIBOR OIS, and given the apprehension with which the equity market has been responding to chatter related to the balance sheet. Whether or not we get resolution on this topic in over the course of the next two weeks remains to be seen. However, we expect at some point the Fed will offer 
more specific guidance on how they plan to taper and eventually end the balance sheet runoff. So as we look ahead, the unifying themes for the next week will be a period of consolidation with strong potential for the refunding auctions combined with the Fed refining its take on monetary policy. For anyone who has managed to make it this far into the podcast, once again, we truly thank you, appreciate your support, and do advise not operating heavy machinery while enjoying our podcast. Thanks again. Thanks for listening to Macro Horizons. Please visit us at bmocm.com backslash macrohorizons. As we aspire to keep our strategy efforts as interactive as possible, we'd love to hear what you thought of today's episode. Please email me at ian.lingen at bmo.com. That's I-A-N dot L-Y-N-G-E-N at B-M-O dot com. You can listen to this show and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast provider. This show and resources are supported by our team here at BMO, including the FIC Macro Strategy Group and BMO's marketing team. This show has been produced and edited by Puddle Creative. This podcast has been prepared with the assistance of employees of Bank of Montreal, BMO Nesbitt Burns Incorporated, and BMO Capital Markets Corporation. Together, BMO, who are involved in fixed income and foreign exchange sales and marketing efforts. Accordingly, it should be considered to be a product of the fixed income and foreign exchange businesses generally, and not a research report that reflects the views of disinterested research analysts. Notwithstanding the foregoing, this podcast should not be construed as an offer or the solicitation of an offer to sell or to buy or subscribe for any particular product or services, including, without limitation, any commodities, securities, or other financial instruments. We are not soliciting any specific action based on this podcast. It is for the general information of our clients. It does not constitute a recommendation or a suggestion that any investment or strategy referenced herein may be suitable for you. It does not take into account the particular investment objectives, financial conditions, or needs of individual clients. Nothing in this podcast constitutes investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, or a representation that any investment or strategy is suitable or appropriate to your unique circumstances, or otherwise constitutes an opinion or a recommendation to you. BMO is not providing advice regarding the value or advisability of trading in commodity interests, including futures contracts, and commodity options or any other activity which would cause BMO or any of its affiliates to be considered a commodity trading advisor under the U.S. Commodity Exchange Act. BMO is not undertaking to act as a swap advisor to you or in your best interests in you. To the extent applicable, will rely solely on advice from your qualified independent representative in making hedging or trading decisions. This podcast is not to be relied upon in substitution for the exercise of independent judgment. You should conduct your own independent analysis of the matters referred to herein, together with your qualified independent representative, if applicable. BMO assumes no responsibility for verification of the information in this podcast. No representation or warranty is made as to the accuracy or completeness of such information, and BMO accepts no liability whatsoever for any loss arising from any use of or reliance on this podcast. BMO assumes no obligation to correct or update this podcast. This podcast does not contain all information that may be required to evaluate any transaction or matter, and information may be available to BMO and or its affiliates that is not reflected herein. BMO and its affiliates may have positions, long or short, and affect transactions or make markets in securities mentioned herein, or provide advice or loans to, or participate in the underwriting or restructuring of the obligations of, issuers and companies mentioned herein. Moreover, BMO's trading desks may have acted on the basis of the information in this podcast. For further information, please go to bmocm.com slash macrohorizons slash legal.